Chapter Five of the Power House by John Buchan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine. Chapter Five. I take a partner. That meeting with Lumley scared me badly, but it also clinched my resolution. The most pacific fellow on earth can be gingered into pugnacity. I had now more than my friendship for Tommy and my sympathy with Pitt Heron to urge me on. A man had tried to bully me, and that roused all the worst stubbornness of my soul. I was determined to see the game through at any cost. But I must have an ally if my nerves were to hold out, and my mind turned at once to Tommy's friend Chapman. I thought with comfort of the bluff independence of the Labour member, so that night at the house I hunted him out in the smoking-room. He had been having a row with the young bloods of my party that afternoon, and received me ungraciously. I'm about sick of you fellows, he growled. I shall not attempt to reproduce Chapman's accent. He spoke rich Yorkshire with a touch of the drawl of the western dales. They went and spoiled the best speech, though I say it as shouldn't, which this old place has heard for a twelve-month. I've been working for days at it in the library. I was telling them how much more bread cost under protection, and the Jew Hilderstein started a laugh because I said kilometers for kilograms. It was just a slip of the tongue, for I had it right in my notes, and besides, their foreign words don't matter a curse. Then that young lord, as sits for East Claygate, gets up and goes out, as I was getting into my peroration, and he drops his topper and knocks off old Higgins's spectacles, and all the idiots laughed. After that I gave it them hot and strong, and got called to order. And then Waddles, him as used to be as good a socialist as me, replied for the government and his blamed board, and said that the board thought this, and the board thought that, and was damned if the board would stir its stumps. Well, I mind the day when I was hanging on to the board's coat-tails in Hyde Park to keep it from talking treason. It took me a long time to get Chapman settled down and anchored to a drink. I want you, I said, to tell me about Routh, you know the fellow I mean, the ex-union leader. At that he fairly blazed up. There you are, you Tories, he shouted, causing a pale liberal member on the next sofa to make a hurried exit. You can't fight fair. You hate the unions, and you rake up any rotten old prejudice to discredit them. You can find out about Routh for yourself, for I'm damned if I help you. I saw I could do nothing with Chapman unless I made a clean breast of it, so for the second time that day I told the whole story. I couldn't have wished for a better audience. He got wildly excited before I was half through with it. No doubt of the correctness of my evidence ever entered his head, for, like most of his party, he hated anarchism worse than capitalism, and the notion of a highly capitalized, highly scientific, highly undemocratic anarchism fairly revolted his soul. Besides, he adored Tommy Deloraine. Routh, he told me, had been a young engineer of a superior type, with a job in a big shop at Sheffield. He had professed advanced political views, and, although he had strictly no business to be there, had taken a large part in trade union work, and was treasurer of one big branch. Chapman had met him often at conferences and on platforms, and had been impressed by the fertility and ingenuity of his mind, and the boldness of his purpose. He was the leader of the left wing of the movement, and had that gift of half-scientific, half-philosophic jargon, which is dear at all times to the hearts of the half-baked. A seat in Parliament had been repeatedly offered him, 
but he had always declined. Wisely, Chapman thought, for he judged him the type which is more effective behind the scenes. But with all his ability, he had not been popular. He was a cold-blooded, sneering devil, as Chapman put it, a sort of Parnell. He tyrannized over his followers, and he was the rudest brute I ever met. Then followed the catastrophe, in which it became apparent that he had speculated with the funds of his union and had lost a large sum. Chapman, however, was suspicious of these losses, and was inclined to suspect that he had the money all the time in a safe place. A year or two earlier the unions, greatly to the disgust of old-fashioned folk, had been given certain extra-legal privileges, and this man Routh had been one of the chief advocates of the union's claims. Now he had the cool effrontery to turn the tables on them and use those very privileges to justify his action and escape prosecution. There was nothing to be done. Some of the fellows, said Chapman, swore to wring his neck, but he did not give them the chance. He had disappeared from England and was generally believed to be living in some foreign capital. What I would give to be even with the swine, cried my friend, clenching and unclenching his big fist but we're up against no small thing in Josiah Routh. There isn't a crime on earth he'd stick at, and he's as clever as the old devil his master. If that's how you feel, I can trust you to back me up, I said, and the first thing I want you to do is to come and stay at my flat. God knows what may happen next, and two men are better than one. I tell you frankly, I'm nervous, and I would like to have you with me. Chapman had no objection. I accompanied him to his Bloomsbury lodgings, where he packed a bag, and we returned to the down-street flat. The sight of his burly figure and sagacious face was a relief to me in the mysterious darkness where I now found myself walking. Thus began my housekeeping with Chapman, one of the queerest episodes in my life. He was the best fellow in the world, but I found that I had misjudged his character. To see him in the house, you would have thought him a piece of granite, with his Yorkshire bluntness and hard, downright north-country sense. He had all that somewhere inside him, but he was also as romantic as a boy. The new situation delighted him. He was quite clear that it was another case of the strife between capital and labor, Tommy and I standing for labor, though he used to refer to Tommy in public as a gilded popinjay, and only a month before had described me in the house as a viperous lackey of capitalism. It was the best kind of strife, in which you had not to meet your adversary with long-winded speeches, but might any moment get a chance to pummel him with your fists. He made me ache with laughter. The spying business used to rouse him to fury. I don't think he was tracked as I was, but he chose to fancy he was, and was guilty of assault and battery on one butcher's boy, two cabbies, and a gentleman who turned out to be a bookmaker's assistant. This side of him got to be an infernal nuisance, and I had many rows with him. Among other things, he chose to suspect my man Waters of treachery. Waters, who was the son of a gardener at home, and hadn't wits enough to put up an umbrella when it rained. You're not taking this business rightly, he maintained one night. What's the good of waiting for these devils to down you? Let's go out and down them. And he announced his intention, from which no words of mine could dissuade him, of keeping watch on Mr. Andrew Lumley at the Albany. His resolution led to a complete disregard of his parliamentary duties. Deputations of constituents waited for him in vain. Of course, he never got a sight of Lumley. All that happened was that he was very nearly given in charge more than once, 
for molesting peaceable citizens in the neighbourhood of piccadilly and regent street one night on my way home from the temple i saw in the bills of the evening papers the announcement of the arrest of a labour member it was chapman sure enough at first i feared that he had got himself into serious trouble and was much relieved to find him in the flat in a state of blazing anger it seemed that he had found somebody whom he thought was lumley for he only knew him from my descriptions the man was in a shop in german street with a car waiting outside and chapman had politely as he swore asked the chauffeur his master's name the chauffeur had replied abusively upon which chapman had hailed him from the driver's seat and shaken him till his teeth rattled the owner came out and chapman was arrested and taken off to the nearest police court he had been compelled to apologize and had been fined five pounds in costs by the mercy of heaven the chauffeur's master was a money-lender of evil repute so the affair did chapman no harm but i was forced to talk to him seriously i knew it was no use explaining that for him to spy on the power-house was like an elephant stalking a gazelle the only way was to appeal to his incurable romanticism don't you see i told him that you are playing lumley's game he will trap you sooner or later into some escapade which will land you in jail and where will i be then that is what he and his friends are out for we've got to meet cunning with cunning and lie low till we get our chance he allowed himself to be convinced and handed over to me the pistol he had bought which had been the terror of my life all right he said i'll keep quiet but you promise to let me into the big scrap when it comes off i promised chapman's notion of the grand finale was a homeric combat in which he would get his fill of fisticuffs he was an anxiety but all the same he was an enormous comfort his imperturbable cheerfulness and his racy talk were the tonics i wanted he had plenty of wisdom too my nerves were getting bad those days and whereas i had rarely touched the things before i now found myself smoking cigarettes from morning till night i am pretty abstemious as you know but i discovered to my horror that i was drinking far too many whiskies and sodas chapman knocked me off all that and got me back to a pipe and a modest nightcap he did more for he undertook to put me in training his notion was that we should win in the end by superior muscles he was a square thick-set fellow who had been a good middleweight boxer i could box a bit myself but i improved mightily under his tuition we got some gloves and used to hammer each other for half an hour every morning then might have been seen the shameful spectacle of a rising barrister with a swollen lip and a black eye arguing in court and proceeding of an evening to his country's legislature where he was confronted from the opposite benches by the sight of a leader of the people in the same vulgar condition in those days i wanted all the relief i could get for it was a beastly time i knew i was in grave danger so i made my will and went through the other doleful performances consequent on the expectation of a speedy decease you see i had nothing to grip on no clear job to tackle only to wait on the off chance with an atmosphere of suspicion thickening around me the spying went on there was no mistake about that but i soon ceased to mind it though i did my best to give my watchers little satisfaction there was a hint of bullying about the spying it is disconcerting at night to have a man bump against you and look you greedily in the face i did not go again to scotland yard but one night i ran across macgillivray in the club he had something of profound interest to tell me 
I had asked about the phrase the powerhouse. Well, he had come across it in the letter of a German friend, a private letter, in which the writer gave the results of his inquiries into a curious affair which a year before had excited Europe. I have forgotten the details, but it had something to do with the Slav states of Austria and an Italian students' union, and it threatened at one time to be dangerous. MacGillivray's correspondent said that in some documents which were seized he found constant allusion to a thing called the Krafthaus, evidently the headquarters staff of the plot and the same word krafthaus had appeared elsewhere in a sonnet of a poet anarchist who shot himself in the slums of antwerp in the last ravings of more than one criminal in the extraordinary testament of professor m of jena who at the age of thirty-seven took his life after writing a strange mystical message to his fellow-citizens MacGillivray's correspondent concluded by saying that, in his opinion, if this Krafthaus could be found, the key would be discovered to the most dangerous secret organization in the world. He added that he had some reason to believe that the motive power of the concern was English. MacGillivray, I said, you have known me for some time, and I fancy you think me a sober and discreet person. Well, I believe I am on the edge of discovering the secret of your Krafthaus. I want you to promise me that if in the next week I send you an urgent message, you will act on it, however fantastic it seems. I can't tell you more. I ask you to take me on trust and believe that for anything I do, I have tremendous reasons. He knit his shaggy gray eyebrows and looked curiously at me. Yes, I'll go bail for your sanity. It's a good deal to promise, but if you make an appeal to me, I will see that it is met. Next day I had news from Felix. Tuke and the man called Saranov had been identified. If you are making inquiries about anybody, it is fairly easy to find those who are seeking for the same person, and the Russian police, in tracking Tommy and Pitt Heron, had easily come on the two gentlemen who were following the same trail. The two had gone by Samarkand, evidently intending to strike into the hills by a shorter route than the main road from Bokhara. The frontier posts had been warned, and the stalkers had become the stalked. That was one solid achievement, at any rate. I had saved Pitt Heron from the worst danger, for first I had sent him Tommy, and now I had put the police on guard against his enemies. I had not the slightest doubt that enemies they were. Charles knew too much, and Tuke was the man appointed to reason with him, to bring him back if possible, or, if not, as Chapman had said, the ex-union leader was not the man to stick at trifles. It was a broiling June, the London season was at its height, and I had never been so busy in the courts before. But that crowded and garish world was little more than a dream to me. I went through my daily tasks, dined out, went to the play, had consultations, talked to my fellows, but all the while I had the feeling that I was watching somebody else perform the same functions. I believe I did my work well, and I know I was twice complimented by the Court of Appeal but my real interests were far away. Always I saw two men in the hot glens of the Oxus, with the fine dust of the loose rising in yellow clouds behind them. One of these men had a drawn and anxious face, and both rode hard. They passed by the closes of apricot and cherry, and the green watered gardens, and soon the Oxus ceased to flow wide among rushes and water-lilies, and became a turbid hill-stream. By and by the roadside changed, and the horses of the travellers trod on mountain turf, 
crushing the irises and marigolds in time. I could feel the free air blowing from the roof of the world, and see far ahead the snowy saddle of the pass which led to India. Far behind the riders I saw two others, and they chose a different way, now over waterless plateau, now in rugged nullahs. They rode the faster, and their route was the shorter. Sooner or later they must catch up the first riders, and I knew, though how I could not tell, that death would attend the meeting. I, and only I, sitting in London, four thousand miles away, could prevent disaster. The dream haunted me at night, and often, walking in the strand or sitting at a dinner-table, I have found my eyes fixed clearly on the shining upland, with the thin white mountains at the back of it, and the four dots, which were men, hurrying fast on their business. One night I met Lumley. It was at a big political dinner given by the chief of my party in the House of Lords, fifty or sixty guests, and a blaze of stars and decorations. I sat near the bottom of the table, and he was near the top, sitting between a famous general and an ex-viceroy of India. I asked my right-hand neighbor who he was, but he could not tell me. The same question to my left-hand neighbor brought an answer. It is old Lumley. Have you never met him? He doesn't go out much, but he gives a man's dinner now and then, which are the best in London. No, he's not a politician, though he favors our side, and I expect has given a lot to our funds. I can't think why they don't make him a peer. He's enormously rich and very generous, and the most learned old fellow in Britain. My chief, my neighbor was an undersecretary, knows him, and told me once that if you wanted any out-of-the-way bit of knowledge, you could get it by asking Lumley. I expect he pulls the strings more than anybody living. But he scarcely ever goes out, and it's a feather in our host's cap to have got him tonight. You never see his name in the papers, either. He probably pays the press to keep him out, like some of those millionaire fellows in America. I watched him through dinner. He was the centre of the talk at his end of the table. I could see the blue ribbon bulging out on Lord Morecambe's breast as he leaned forward to question him. He was wearing some foreign orders, including the Legion of Honour, and I could hear in the pause of conversation echoes of his soft, rich voice. I could see him beaming through his glasses on his neighbours, and now and then he would take them off and look mildly at a speaker. I wondered why nobody realised, as I did, what was in his light, wild eyes. The dinner, I believe, was excellent, and the company was good, but down at my end I could eat little, and I did not want to talk. Here in this pleasant room, with servants moving softly about, and a mellow light on the silver from the shaded candles, I felt the man was buttressed and defended beyond my reach. A kind of despairing hatred gripped me when I looked his way, for I was always conscious of that other picture, the Asian desert, Pitt Heron's hunted face, and the grim figure of Tuke on his trail. That, and the great secret wheels of what was too inhuman to be called crime, moving throughout the globe under this man's hand. There was a party afterwards, but I did not stay. No more did Lumley, and for a second I brushed against him in the hall at the foot of the big staircase. He smiled on me affectionately. Have you been dining here? I did not notice you. You had better things to think of, I said. By the way, you gave me good advice some weeks ago. It may interest you to hear that I have taken it. I am so glad, he said softly. You are a very discreet young man. But his eyes told me that he knew I lied. End of chapter 5
Recording by expatriate in Bangor, Maine.